0: Welcome back to Revolution in Ideology. I am Jared. I'm Nick. And we are joined uh, again today by Stefan Huddleston, who recently published an article called When Worlds Collaborate, the Style of Early Tabletop Roly- Role Playing Games, um, back uh, on December 18th. The reason we brought Stefan back to talk about this article is it's a topic that that neither Nick or myself is fully equipped um, to engage, but we think it's actually a very important topic as we dabble a little bit in, in pop culture over these last, I don't know, probably year and a half, two years regarding representation in, in, in this case, tabletop gaming, but for Nick and myself, how this might trickle into um, what we experience now, you know, 20, 30, four, uh, 40 years later, regarding representation in all types of gaming, and, and honestly, all types of, of entertainment, and what this says um, about our society. So I think without further, further elaboration on my part, I want to introduce Stefan and have him lay the groundwork here for um, his recent research.
1: Yeah, cool. Thanks, thanks. Jared uh, and Nick. Um, So... Uh, what I'm talking about um, in this article, uh, I'm focusing on tabletop role-playing games, um, and the most popular of those is Dungeons and Dragons. That's the one people are going to most likely recognize. But there are tabletop role-playing games in all genres. So there are tabletop role-playing games based on movies, on TV, popular TV shows. Um, there are horror games. There are sci-fi games. Uh, pretty much, if you can imagine it, there's probably a tabletop role-playing game out there kind of that fits that particular genre or style. Um, many, many of them out there. Um, and they are popular globally. There are games that uh, come from Europe and Asia, um, all over the world. Um, and so, and this this pastime has grown in popularity. It was kind of one of those kind of niche, nerdy uh, pastimes when it originated with Dungeons & Dragons was the, the first game in, in 1974. Uh, but... Uh, it's grown um it's still niche in comparison to a lot of other things but it's grown in popularity throughout these years and so i uh have played these games um all my life uh pretty much since 1977 i started playing these games um and i started with dungeons and dragons and moved into other games and so when i uh was going through uh the master's program, uh, and doing my graduate work. Um, I kind of wanted to go back and kind of compare my experiences with, uh, kind of what I had seen and, 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 and experienced, um, in the seventies and eighties in the early days of these games and kind of deal attack it from an academic perspective and see, uh, how that matched up with what I had experienced. Um, obviously, uh, Uh, As has been discussed many times before, and obviously for those who know, I'm I'm black, right? And so uh, my experience was very different because the overwhelming majority uh, of people who play these games are white men. Um, And so uh, that's the overwhelming majority of who plays these games, who wrote these games, uh, particularly in the early years. Um, The diversity has grown with these games um, recently in the last say 20, 25 years or so. Uh, But I wanted to go back and kind of research that and kind of try and get at the root of it. And so um, I was looking
0: to- yeah before you go too much further I do want your thoughts what what drew you to this academic question I get what drew you to the question in general it's it's an interest of yours and, and maybe even a passion that 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 you probably have amazing memories about and you you love playing these games but from the academic angle what made you want to to go back and like I guess I'm just
1: asking yeah. why why do you think this matters Um, so I think it matters for a few reasons. One, kind of the base, um, themes that are in these games, um, kind of run throughout, uh, throughout kind of human experience, right? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, lord of the rings for instance is is something that people will know wildly wildly popular the marvel the mcu movies wildly wildly popular with millions of people around the world and um these games are uh, in ways D D heavily takes from tolkien's lord of the rings um in its uh in its origins um as well as some other sources uh but they deal with themes of uh of things that uh, are very appealing to people and, and, and recurring themes that we see in storytelling um, mm-hmm. throughout human history, right? And so uh, what these games do is they allow people as a, as a player to kind of Uh, become a part of that process so when when you have someone say for instance who writes a book you know somebody writes like a lord of the rings or somebody makes a movie uh, we are uh, Stuart Hall uh, who I'll go back to uh, uh, the great kind of uh, uh, sociologist Stuart Hall who coincidentally uh, was originally wanted to be a medieval historian Um, he was going to go Uh, to be a medieval historian and uh the reason he did not become a medieval historian was that he was rejected by none other than J.R. tolkien uh um to get into the graduate program um that he wanted to get into where uh uh, tolkien was the chair at oxford and he tolkien rejected him uh so he went into uh, uh sociology and he writes uh this kind of important uh bit of work reception theory and he talks about the way uh someone who writes like a book or a film or a show they encode that um with certain ideas right and then we as the the people who are reading it we decode it um, and what I argue in my, in my um, thesis and in my article uh, that the thesis uh, that was drawn from my thesis is that uh, what role-playing games allow us to do is they allow us to re-encode. We are taking information because as a player um, – uh, for those who don't know role-playing games, role-playing games are very much similar. The cl- One of the closest things I can liken them to is kind of like Im- improv theater, right? Mm. You have a... Um... You have a person who's called the game master, or in D and D, the dungeon master. There are various other names depending on the game, but this is the person who kind of moderates things, kind of regulates the rules, and they lay out the story. So they may describe a particular scene to the to the players, right? They may say, okay, uh, you know, you find yourself in such and such a place. Here's what it looks like. Here's kind of what the environment is. You know, and and maybe they'll give you some some hooks for adventure, right? They say, well, you see two shady people in the corner, uh, whispering, right? Uh, you see um, some guy follow out, uh, follow a person who maybe was waving around a bunch of money out into the street, and they they're they're following them very serestipishly, like kind of maybe implying that that person is about to be robbed, right? And then they turn it over to the players. What are you guys going to do, right? And you as the player. Um, have the, the opportunity then um, along with your group mates to decide what you're going to do, right? You're, you're like, oh, well, I want to follow uh, that person who just followed the position, or I want to go s- maybe see if I can sit closer to these guys having this shady conversation. Maybe I can hear uh, what, they're, what they're up to, right? Um, and so it allows you to kind of be a part of crafting this story, right? And I argue in my article that very early on, uh what was happening uh when these games originated in the 1970s we were coming out of the 1960s and these games were largely being written by um again straight white men from uh middle america who did not have a lot of necessarily direct contact with uh what was going on with the civil rights movement the women's rights movement um and then also we had vietnam going on right um at this time frame and i i argue that all of these things kind of combined um influenced the worlds that they were creating right they were creating worlds based on the works of tolkien they were creating uh, fantasy worlds um sci-fi worlds um but what was really important here was that these were worlds where they could control right they knew uh at least if not on a conscious level, on a subconscious level, that the world was changing around them in drastic ways, right? Uh, Segregation was coming to an end. Uh, The ERA was on the table. Uh, um, Abortion was now uh, 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 becoming legal. Um, And Vietnam was happening, right? And they couldn't control their changing world. But these games gave them a place that they could control a place where they could set the tone of things and a place where they could save the world right they couldn't go to vietnam and save the world right and 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 some of them are vietnam veterans or they knew vietnam veterans who were involved in this um they couldn't save the world but they could in these worlds that they were creating right and these worlds are very heavily based on like i said the works of that were come before them, a lot of fantasy works and things like that, sci-fi works, and um, I further argue that these these worlds are um, almost exclusively, in the early days, almost exclusively Eurocentric, uh, so because that's
0: sorry i didn't mean so this part of the import if you're going to be creating heroes and villains and narratives and building a world we're filtering this through a very narrow lens but that narrow lens is going to then as we used in, in a prior episode with you, diffuse to other parts of culture as well. It's going to make it very popular that this very narrow lens, this very Eurocentric lens of what a hero looks like and when cool times in history were and value systems and things along those, those are all
1: mm-hmm.
0: very specific.
1: Yes, 100%. Yeah, and so what happens is, is that we see throughout kind of um, – uh, the history of of fantasy in the early and mid 20th century um, and and that filters into these games um, as well, what we see is a very heavy focus on um, kind of a Eurocentric style. So uh, at one point I use maps uh, from these various games and um, I also use maps from like other works like the works of J.R.R. Tolkien uh, with Lord of the Rings, the works of Robert E. Howard with Conan and other things like that. And what's happening is, is what we see based in these maps is we see that uh, we have a fictional version of Europe at the center of these games, right? Now, this happens for a couple of different reasons. Um, And what we see is this Eurocentric styling, this Eurocentric styling of kind of a central Europe, To the south, what we're going to find is an analog of Africa. To the east, we're going to find analogs of of Mongolia, China, Japan, the rest of Asia, and things like that, right? And these things all kind of uh, come together in these ways to form kind of a very kind of, again, Eurocentric, but also Orientalist framing of these Mm. fictional worlds. Now, uh, now, Part of this is intentional on the part of these writers because it's easy if i show you a map of uh robert e howard's uh um the world where he's writing um the age you know the the world of conan uh hyboria the central part that's kind of european facing if you if you go up to the north there are a couple of places on this map uh asgard and vanheim right Um, and if I say those names to you and I point to those places and I just say Vikings, it's a simple, easy shorthand. I don't have to have a lot of exposition explaining to you what these places look like. You already have imaginings of what the people look like. You already have imaginings of what the landscape looks like. If I go south to Stygia and I say ancient Egypt, I say there are snake cults. And there are uh, pyramids and things like that. You have these kind of imaginings of kind of this kind of popular imagining of what this place looks like, what it feels like. Right. Um, So it makes it very easy on the writer. And one of the reasons that Robert E. Howard did this was that he was able to write in these places without any fear of anachronisms. He was able to to write something that felt Egyptian or that felt Norris. Without someone coming along and saying, "Well, you know, you put this this weapon or this item in there 200 years before it would have happened," right? Um, he can avoid those anachronisms very easily. He can sidestep them because this is a fictional world.
0: Yeah, it's fiction.
1: Yeah, but what it also does is it <laughs> creates this framing that centers Europe, right? All of these places that I just described, along with many others, have this framing of this kind of fictional version of Europe. You're going to find an ocean to the west. That's the rough equivalent of the Atlantic. Um, And you're going to find uh, these primitive peoples to the south. So if you look at uh, Tolkien's middle Earth you're going to go down to the south and you're going to find these darker skinned people the South runs who are uh, going to kind of mesh up with uh, uh, real world darker skinned peoples and they're going to be kind of more savage less enlightened uh, than the peoples who are in the central parts of middle Earth right well, I didn't um, that are based to. on European peoples.
0: I didn't want to spoil any of the points you were about to make, but I guess the question already, now that you're laying, I didn't know this, that these worlds were laid out that way. Um, But you have me thinking... And you already mentioned like in, in 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 the tolkien series how the people of the south are considered lesser or the less than or whatever in that series is that is that a common theme throughout them like i guess i when i and i've not even watched all the lord of the rings movies or anything along those lines i don't I'm, it's not something i'm super into but i always thought like this idea of eradicating whatever they're eradicating trolls or whatever or ogres i, I can never remember Orcs, is, yeah. Is that what it is? I mean, is that are are those also those different like those different subspecies or different species meant to be representative of 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 others, right, of other humans from these other parts of the world? Is this a rationale like
1: so you you, Jared, just opened one of the largest can of worms in the TTRPG area in in the sphere of tabletop role playing games, uh, the orc. So the orcs of Tolkien's orcs, right? There is ongoing debate. There's a huge kerfluffle. You can go on Twitter and you can find all kinds of stuff about it. Uh, just within the last year, a huge compl- thing And, and uh, within the sphere of these things, um, you can find this ongoing debate. So he, he, here's, here's my take on it. Um, Tolkien... Very much, and and there's a lot of talk and debate about Tolkien's descriptions of orcs very early on, which uses a lot of language that kind of equates to uh, what would have, in Tolkien's time, been called Mongoloid peoples. Mm. Um to describe the orcs, right? And the orcs are supposed to be kind of corruptions of the, that magically corrupted versions of the very noble and pure elven peoples. Now, of course, elves are light-skinned. They're uh, very fair. They're described as good and and noble and all of these other
0: Orlando Bloom, as I recall, right?
1: Absolutely, right? And orcs are dark-skinned. They are brutish. They are savage. They are um, animalistic all mm. of these other things right
2: mm. i was about to ask jared if he's even seen the movies
0: <laughs> i've not seen the movies but again just through pop culture the osmosis yeah
1: filters through yeah he's gotten it so a lot of debate has gone back and forth about uh how much intent tolkien had in um crafting this particular paradigm of light white equals good dark equals Hmm. savage, bad, all that side of thing.
0: Which isn't even novel. You have me already thinking, like, you were just bringing up Norse mythology, like Asgard and Midgard and all those other stuff, and I actually just recently watched a, a Norwegian film about hunting trolls that was okay on Netflix or whatever, but yeah. like, even those narratives they used to weave back then, they would use this mythos, whether they believed it or not as debatable, to discuss, like, these are the bad ones. The trolls, in this case, are the bad ones, or one of my favorites is, I think, yes. the Ramayana of Southeast Asia, where they do, they paint the people of Lanka, which is now Sri Lanka, as, like, these Dark-skinned bad people, and again, it completely justifies um, what the country of India would later do to Sri Lanka, right? Like, so it's like you know,
1: yeah, yeah. So, so I do talk in my article about how we have this paradigm of uh, colorism, right? That uh, way predates. Um, what we know today as modern racism, right? It long yeah. predates. It's, it goes. You can go back to the Bible. You can go back to all sorts of ancient texts that set up this paradigm of dark is evil, filthy, dirty, sinful, whatever. Light is good, pure, so on and so forth, right? Um, and and that and that exists. And and so I think there's a lot of debate about how, how much of this Tolkien intended. And I think the problem here is it's really less about the intent and more about the impact, right? Yeah. And the impact is is still there, whether or not Tolkien intended it that way. Um, um, it's still there that this paradigm is is established and has become very much a part of tabletop role-playing games, but other entertainment as well, right? Um, and, and it still has existed throughout as a through thread, right? um and so while people are debating about back and forth about orcs and and whether what they may or may not represent um i still think they set up this uh that kind of schism here um and so that's very much there the other thing that's there that's recently come up with the most recent lord of the rings series that's also existent across all of these things because they're so intertwined Um, Are these misconceptions, these misconceptions, for instance, that Europe was all white in the Middle Ages. Right. And so therefore, since these fantasy things, even though they're completely fictional, are based in medieval Europe, there is this line of thinking from a certain subset of people that fantasy should be all white because that's what we had throughout the majority of the 20th century right um and anyone who tries to upset that apple cart is bringing some kind of woke nonsense into the debate and they're not there it's not as many people try to say historically accurate well those people wouldn't know historical accuracy if it bit them on the ass because there were people of color in medieval europe they weren't there in great numbers but they were certainly present you know uh one of the uh one of my other uh Theses that I wrote in my master's program, I wrote on two 13th century uh, medieval tales, Arthurian tales, about black African Arthurian knights. Um, And I'm and I constantly argue that if people in the 13th century could put black people in their uh, fiction, then so can we. Right. Uh, But there's this pushback um, and this mistaken belief that that because throughout the 20th century, um, and and throughout, you know, even going back to the 18th century, a lot of well, frankly, a lot of historians tried to convince us that Europe was all white. A lot of entertainment tried to convince us that Europe was all white um, and that people of color were not present at all um, in these narratives and, and, and that uh, women <laughs> largely weren't present as well in, in, in many ways. Um, And, of course, as we go back and we reinvestigate and reexamine these things, we find that's false. Well yeah, I mean that's
0: we know for a fact like for for some parts of what we call these middle ages it's now not popular to say this but I'm going to say it anyway cuz I don't care. Um yeah, some of these were dark ages where Europe was definitely behind the rest of the world in a number of different fields, medicine and mathematics and and and, and philosophy and all those other types of things and they would literally bring in scholars specifically from um the kingdoms of like Mansa, Muda, Mansa Musa and 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 the various I think at that time were going with the Abbasid caliph, right? The Abbas in the Middle East and things like Along those lines they're bringing in these scholars to europe um to not educate obviously the general populace they didn't want that but yes to have like these education of some of the scholars in europe and some of the the lords and dukes and earls and barons and whatever all of yes. yes all of it so th- there was representation there, right so we yeah absolutely that,
1: yeah and so uh, um, to go back to kind of one of the questions you had asked earlier, Jared, uh, another thing that really kind of encouraged me to kind of delve more into this is that in the last 20 years, and particularly within the last five years, what we've seen in 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 tabletop role playing games is an explosion of games that are more representative um, and and So uh, here very recently, for instance, last year, we had the introduction of a game called Coyote and Crow, which was written by uh, a complete team of uh, uh, indigenous authors from North America, from all across North America. uh, That is a tabletop role playing game that imagines a fictional uh, North America uh, where Europe was wiped out and Europeans never came to uh, to North America, we see games that um, are reimagining uh, from a uh, 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 a kind of um, Turkish kind of Asia Minor perspective what um, the Silk Road uh, looks like, and looking at it through that lens, we've seen games. Um, written for uh, uh, by, uh, for instance, uh, there's a very popular role-playing game called Call of Cthulhu that kind of focuses on the works of uh, H.P. Lovecraft, who was notoriously racist, uh, a very outspoken racist in the 1920s, but his works of uh, what they call cosmic horror are still extraordinarily popular today. Um, And... um, so there's a – you may have heard of the the uh, television show in the book called uh, Lovecraft Country um, that recently came out. Uh, I see uh, Nick knows, but Jared, of course, no shock there. Uh, but there's a role-playing <laughs> game uh, supplement that uh where the author who is uh who is african-american kind of takes that kind of genre and and a lot of the cthulhu stuff is set in kind of the 1920s and he reframes the uh uh 1920s and 30s i should say uh he reframes it uh and sets his kind of version of it in harlem during the harlem renaissance Mm. and um takes these ideas of cosmic horror and really what Lovecraft is doing with his stories is he was a notorious xenophobe um, and he um, hated the other and he's using these kind of cosmologically horrific monsters and ideas that drive people insane as a kind of representation of the, the other, of the, the ravening hordes of the other that are going to kind of bring down traditional white culture right uh european culture um and chris spivey the the writer of this thing called harlem unbound kind of reframes it as uh um the true monsters here are humans and racism uh and and he kind of uses that to kind of reframe Uh, what's going on with uh, with uh, call of cthulhu and so there's a whole crop of writers out there uh, diverse writers um, uh, from the um, lbgt community from all of these that are rewriting uh, these games and making uh, games from a more representative perspective and as that was happening um I kind of also that was also kind of a motivation for me to kind of go back into the history of these games and and, and discover, like, how did we get here? Right. How did we get to this point? Um, And why is there this kind of call and and desire and push for these new kind of diverse representations? And the answer, of course, is very similar to what we're seeing around uh, around everywhere else. When I grew up in the 80s. The heroes were white men. Right. Uh, when I went to the movies, when I watched television shows, um, overwhelmingly, the heroes were white men. And if there were people of color, they were usually the sidekicks. They were usually the people who were uh uh, kind of helping out, but they weren't in that lead position, right? Like Um, Vine
0: Vine Deloria's cameo theory of history is also played out in pop culture where, where people of color or people of different, well, and in fact, in the eighties and nineties, I don't even think we saw anybody of a different sexual orientation. So that's not, but in pop culture, right? Like they were not represented at all, but for people of color, they were only performing cameos. They were, they were yeah the sidekick. I'm, I'm thinking specifically i didn't even like gi joe but for some reason the one gi joe figure that that stuck out to me was the first nation guy i don't know his name but like he's yep. the one and he was of just a, the stereotype was just like that's the one character that i recall as a kid right like
1: absolutely you know, yeah if you if you saw a character a uh, particularly uh, uh uh um indigenous uh character or you saw a character of uh uh from Asia or whatever, they were going to conform to uh, certain tropes, particularly in the '80s, right? Uh, almost without a doubt, uh, if you saw an Asian character, they were probably going to be carrying a katana, or they were going to be wearing some kind of like uh, stylized version of uh, of um, uh, kung fu or karate wear or something like that, right? These very kind of stereotypical uh, um, portrayals, uh, um, and that's and that was. Just so typical. Um, Yeah. And you're right. Very, very few. I mean, the only character I can immediately think of in a uh, 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 of a different sexual orientation is um, uh, Billy Crystal's character on the sitcom Soap. Um, who was the first uh, openly gay character on television, and and he was always—I uh, mean, granted, it was a comedy—but he was always going to be uh, the one that they were going to be making fun of, right? Um, to one degree or another, his his like homosexuality was going to be like the the, the focal point of all their jokes, right? Uh, uh, that uh, when he was on screen, uh, and th- this is all uh, again. Uh, representative. So those, this, the, the same things that were going on in, in um, pop culture are, are kind of what's going on in, uh, in tabletop role-playing games. So one of the things that I did uh, when I was studying this was uh, the, the publisher of Dungeons and Dragons and Dungeons and Dragons throughout all of this time has and remains the, the most popular of these games, uh, published a magazine um, that coincided with Dungeons & Dragons, but also dealt with some, uh, some of the other games that were out there to some extent. And this magazine, Dragon Magazine, uh, um, runs popularly throughout the 70s and into the 80s. And so what I did was, uh, one of the things I did was I looked at like the first 10 years of this magazine, and one of the questions I, I had was, if I go into this, how many characters of color am I going to see represented? uh the answer of course is is extraordinarily few uh the few that i did see overwhelmingly there were a handful and those that i did see usually conformed to some very standard stereotypes uh uh you know we see one black character and he's standing there holding a spear wearing a leopard skin <laughs> uh um with a hide a hide shield right like huge shock right um, we see a few other characters of color and a few other things, but the majority of what I saw characters of color in was there was a section in dragon magazine where, uh, again, there was a, a Marvel universe, like Marvel role-playing game based on the comics. Of course, this was long before the movies came along. It was ba- still based on the comic books. And one of the popular things to do with tabletop role-playing games is to take popular characters from genre fiction, uh, be it, uh, you know taking characters from i'm going to take a character from a popular fantasy novel or something like that and i'm going to translate them into D, right like here's their stats in D. um there was a marvel role-playing game at the time so they published stats for a lot of the marvel characters at the time and that was the majority of where you saw black characters because in the late 60s and into the 70s marvel had kind of gotten on board with bringing in a lot of um black characters um into the marvel universe i uh power Man, uh 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 luke cage you know power man and uh all of these others uh were brought into these uh into the comics and so uh while there's still issues of problematic representations there that was the majority of colors of character that you saw in dragon magazine outside of those the representations of 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 characters of color are extraordinarily flu again because the majority of these games were being played and written by, uh, uh, white men. When I was growing up, um, I would go to role-playing conventions. There are conventions where people get together and you can buy these games, people play these games and all of these things. And, and in the seventies and eighties in Los Angeles, when I grew up and in the greater Los Angeles area, when I would go to these conventions, I could very easily go to one of these conventions that might draw 5,000 people or more, um, and I could count on one hand the number of attendees to these conventions that were were black um, very easily in that time frame. Um, In some contexts, that still hasn't changed, Um, but we are starting to see a vast amount more of representation. And also, I should point out, there were very few women in those early days. Uh, The parity of of women to men has greatly increased um, in these games um, since the 1990s. But but, uh, we still don't quite see as much representation. Only recently has the representation really started to grow uh, for people of color, uh, in these spheres. Um, so, so yeah.
0: So I have a couple of questions that, that you yeah. raised for me. The, the first one is I'm going to go back to academics for just a second. Obviously mm-hmm. I'm the history, the history, uh, whatever academic on, on, on this pod and, and that's, yeah. that's what I do. Um, I am curious cause I've always wondered at least in my experience in education, um, for this last decade plus what is is this helping lead to this weird fascination people have specifically with medieval history like i'm not denigrating medieval history by any stretch of the imagination it's but it's never been my cup of tea for for reasons that we're actually citing here um but is do you think this somehow has this weird thing where people are like i want to study knights and lancelots and whatever because like this is like i've been inculcated in a society that that fetishizes it in a way through these fantasies right is do you think that's Mm -hmm. leading to that and for me that's always been i'll use the word i hate this word but i'm gonna use it anyway cringe but still like is that do you think Uh, it contributes uh, to this because because it's still a wildly popular form of history um here which just I don't know, just feels odd. It's just and maybe for me because it's oversaturated, just not that interesting of a history. Again, we're, we're learning about a part of the world during a part of it during a time where not nearly as many cool things are happening as are happening in sub-Saharan Africa or Southeast
1: Asia or North America. Like, why? Why,
0: why are we so into it?
1: I think there's a couple of things. One, yes, I think it's part of it. Uh, and it kind of works both ways, right? I think there's an interest in these games that leads people to medieval history, and there's an interest in medieval history that leads people to these games um, together. But I think also a huge part of it, and and, and another thing I talked about in my thesis, is that, um, and and of course you'll jive with this, this goes back to the ethically constitutive story. Um Medieval Europe and uh, 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 perceptions and misconceptions of chivalry and uh, bravery and knighthood are 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 kind of endemic to uh, these like Tolkien style fantasy, but also to kind of Eurocentrism, right? Um, a huge part of of uh, you know, as you know with the ethically constitutive story is hearkening back to a past age when things were more glorious
0: an imagined past, a romanticized past that never actually occurred, right? Like
1: 100%. I mean, yeah. the was
0: one of my favorite things to pick on. They were horrific human beings. Like the Shibuya, yeah. they were bad people, literally bad people, the vast majority of them. I'm sure there were yeah. a couple of good eggs like b- 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 baked in there somewhere. But for the most part, right, you look at the primary sources of the era, um, they were sexual predators, they were drinkers, they were violent, they were not high quality. Yeah. Well, and most you know, of the time- not even that well-educated, right? The education wasn't even reserved for them because you want them as, as an educated person just going out and doing what you need them to do without asking questions, right? Like Well, that. but yeah. I think
2: that like, I think that's part of the point, right? And like, maybe this is controversial, but I think the people that fetishize, you know, medieval history, it's the very fact that the norms were such where there was this group of white men, overwhelmingly white, who could behave in this way and they were free to do so because they were their protectorate right in this case. And I think that's what part of the fantasy is and part of the obsession. It
1: it is. It is. And I think, I think, um, uh, I think, um, uh, you know, uh, well, and Jared will recognize this, you know, one of our, uh, 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 one of the medievalist former colleagues we used to work with uh, uh, Dr. Karen Wagner would call them thugs on horseback, you know, um, and that's what they were, right? Like they were, uh, thugs on horseback, but I think you're right. I think there's an, there's an appeal for a certain subset of people to that kind of way of life. Right. And, and for Americans specifically, we like to hearken back to, uh, uh, the so-called wild West. Right. But there's a through thread from that back to kind of, um, Back to kind of medieval Europe. Right. And, and 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 through kind of the European roots of America back to, uh, like you said, this romanticized image. So one of the other things I speak about when I'm looking at kind of the, the gender roles that are portrayed mm. in these um, um, in these games is. Um, uh, so very early on when the game starts, uh, when the, these games start out, in, the, in, like I said, 1974, very early on, an individual, a man by the name of – a sociologist by the name of Gary Allen Fine uh, writes a book. He, he does the very first ethnography of tabletop role-playing games. Um, uh, he In the ni- late 1970s, he joins a couple of role-playing clubs and groups and kind of starts playing several of these games with them and kind of observing – um, what he's seen, and so one of the things that I tapped into, uh, uh, a- a- and trigger warning upcoming for sexual assault for those who uh, 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 need it. Um, the there's a there's this phenomena that's going on very early on that he taps into, and he writes a book called Shared Fantasy, uh, and he. Identifies a few things in this book. First off, he identifies role playing as what he calls a benign form of a phaléadou, uh, or a shared, uh, a shared delusion. But he calls it mm-hmm. shared fantasy, where you're, where you're kind of sharing. Uh, essentially, it's like a shared dream, right? What you're doing mm-hmm. here, right? Mm-hmm. And he, um, the other thing that one of the other things that he identifies here is he d- identifies again. Uh, With these uh, groups of young men who are playing the games and most of them, uh, again, uh, another other identifiers that they have is that most of them are younger men in uh, their teens into their 20s and maybe 30s. And um, a lot of them are middle class. And he identifies this uh, just huge penchant. Not, not just in Dungeons & Dragons, but in fan- sci-fi games and other games, a penchant for um, sexual violence um, in these games um, against women. Um, women are, are overwhelmingly objectified in many, many ways, both in the art that is presented in association with these games, in the way they're framed. Um, if you look at some of the articles... Um, women are put in this uh, very er- – the early articles, women are very put in this very paradigm where, um, for instance, um, women are either very beautiful or they're very ugly, right? And based on whether they're beautiful or ugly, they have certain abilities. Um, like, for instance, if they're very beautiful, they have access to the seduction spell, right? Hmm. Um, or they can seduce men. Uh, there's some awful, awful stuff in the very early days of the game. One of the games I, I point out, uh, for instance, there's a game called Tunnels and Trolls. And very early on, uh, one of the spells they have is called Enslave, where you can cast the spell on someone and literally enslave someone. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but uh, and then it's also Dragon Magazine very early on produces an article uh and, and I make the argument that, like, between what I was seeing in Fine's work and this article, um, that uh, there ha- there was a larger problem, a-, a-, a larger problem. Because Dragon Magazine produces an article where it is essentially calling out that there's, there's not a place for um, this sexual violence in these games, right? That they shouldn't be there. And, of course, I make the argument that, like, they wouldn't be writing this article if there wasn't a larger... Incidents of it, right, um, going on. Um, but even within that article, they make some, some, some claims about women in general that are uh, problematic, right? Um, and then we do have a few articles written in Dragon Magazine from the very small handful of women who were playing these games um, early on. Um, a couple of them are writing some articles that are questioning the way women are framed. Um, So, for instance, very early on in these games, uh, female characters in Dungeons and Dragons um, couldn't have a strength score that was higher than a male. Like their maximum strength score was was um, capped lower than the maximum strength score of males of the equivalent uh, equivalent type, be they a dwarf or an elf or a human or whatever. Um, And so there are a lot of things going on on the gender aspect here. Um, that are going on. And, and, and uh, Fine, in his book, he quotes some very, like, graphic and brutal descriptions of sexual violence occurring in these games, right? Um, and again, I think there comes a certain kind of romanticized version of medieval Europe that, um, to some extent, right, to some extent, is is not untrue, right? There was sexual violence in in medieval Europe that was committed by these so-called noble knights and these chivalrous individuals, right? Um, But there's kind of this penchant for wanting to uh, um, um, make that kind of a, a, a part of the historically accurate experience right alongside these things that are Uh, like you said, that are completely false, these ideas of chivalry um, that didn't extend. I mean, they sound great on paper, but they weren't the reality of what was going on, right? Mm -hmm. Um, um, And so all of those things kind of come together to kind of frame um, this world. And I think that goes back to the argument I was making before, kind of like what Nick says, is that what we have particularly very on in the early years, and there's still a subset of of, of people within the hobby today who want that, right? They want, that's the world they want, right? They want to harken back to European dominance. They wanna harken back to white male dominance. They wanna harken back to a world where they could say that they were the good guys, they were the knights, they were the ones who had chivalry, but in reality, they could run wild over the countryside and do what they wanted, right? And um, for some of them, that's what these games allow them to do. Um, like spaghetti thankfully- westerns
0: uh, in the in the mid twentieth century for those people that were fantasizing, or more recently, there's been a, a pop culture phenomenon that I've noticed that I haven't researched, but people always try and talk to me about it like it's cool, and I refuse to read it. the The reimagining World War II where the Nazis win. And there's a tower. That it, there's a tower involved. Something high yeah. tower.
1: Man, yeah, the, the, uh, yeah. 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 Okay. Whatever. Like yeah.
0: what, what kind of weird fetish is that? Like, I don't like wired. Yeah. I mean, or, yeah. It's...
1: So we ask, and of course I, I teach uh, one of the courses that I teach is a, is a course on alternate history. Uh, and of course we try and steer students to um, other aspects of alternate history. And we've gotten some really cool ones by the way Um so I use as an example like that game Coyote and Crow, where we're reimagining mm. a North America without Europeans, right? Um, as an as an as an alternate history, or I reimagined. Uh, I, I I had a student do a reimagining of um, kind of uh, the Aztec Empire, kind of growing and dominating um, um, the world. So that was uh, my next
0: question, real quickly. I didn't want to cut that yeah, far yeah, off. Yeah. Now you have yeah. me thinking because I, I I just remembered it. Um, so representation in a European world could arguably still be problematic. Why have our fantasies, whether it's in tabletop gaming that then bleeds into film and television, and, and eventually we'll talk, talk video games in just a second here, why are those settings still? I, I get it that it's good to have representation in these European settings, but when is the setting or why is the setting not again uh, i don't know within like the zulu nation of the of the 19th century mm-hmm. or something along those lines or i mean it is increasingly because of of uh, i would argue like anime and manga culture it is increasingly becoming there's there's better asian representation now but like why is it not really anywhere else like yeah. why don't we have those settings because again and i'm speaking specifically to what i know about about <laughs> middle age to modern africa there are some amazing settings for to introduce African mythos and African ways of th- like, but but we're just never going to get there. Is that
1: yeah? So, so we, we 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 are getting those absolutely. Um, and there are some spectacular examples out there currently or that are on the horizon that are in the works right now. Uh, there's some great um afrocentric uh um, games that are out there. Uh, like you mentioned, that maybe I have a little bit of passion. Um, all of these books behind me are all tabletop role-playing games. So, like this one right here, um, Arun, is an Afrocentric uh, mm. sci-fi role-playing game. Um, mm. There are um, there are those examples that we're just now starting to get. Like I said, within the last uh, few years. Perfect. But uh, I think the staying power of Europe kind of goes back to what Nick says. There are those people that cling to that, right? They cling to that as the truth right as the truth of our past as the truth of our history and so it bleeds into our fantasy and there are those who when games come out like oroon or coyote and crow or all of these other games that uh point to uh different ways to tell stories there's a pushback from a, a a pretty vocal uh group just like we see um in other like in video little games, mermaids
0: say, and, and little murder yeah. controversies and whatnot. Yeah.
1: Yeah. There's a pushback that, um, that is trying to maintain this kind of popular Euro as the, as a monopoly and as the norm. Right. And these are the, you know, these are the others that are trying to come in and take that away from everybody. Um, And and, and destroy that, right? Whereas I I think,
2: let's call it what it is, right? Like, first off, this clinging to this fantasized version of the history, right, is crucial to their identity, and it's just manifesting itself in their interest. In this case, in both Mm -hmm. medieval history and in these like fantasy games. So then even a game that is purely fantasy, that's fiction, that is based on some other part of the world or some other culture, just its very existence is a threat to their identity, their real world identity in modern times, right?
1: Right, right. Well, and I, I constantly, uh, continually make the argument that it's never just fiction, right? It's mm-hmm. never just fantasy. Because we're drawing these things, be it European fiction be it afrocentric be it asian whatever we are drawing these worlds and things from what we know right so we are putting a dabbling of of the cultures that we know and understand right um into these things right so it's just laced through uh, with these things that are either coming from Europe or they're coming from Africa, they're coming from Asia, uh, whatever the case may be. And so it's not just fantasy, right? And then there's all sorts of like semiotic coding that's put into them, and allegory and metaphor um, that is coming from the real world, right? So a lot of people try and just make this claim that ah, it doesn't matter that there's only white characters here because it's a fictional world, so there's not really any African-Americans in this world, anyway, right, um, and they try and use that as an excuse to uh, negate representation, right? Um, well, I mean, Jake it's Jennings obviously like cherry of that.
2: picking, right? It's yes, they support historical accuracy only when it serves their needs, right?
1: Yeah, one one hundred percent, right? And if it's any kind of accuracy that goes against their particular narrative, then they're like, oh well, that's different, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, extraordinarily so. So, I, uh, you know, a huge part of what it is that we're dealing with here is we're dealing with um, this kind of internalized envisionment of what a hero is, what fantasy is, what uh, storytelling is, right? What the hero's journey is and all of these other things, right? That uh, it's those conceived notions that um, this new crop of... of uh, not just tabletop role-playing games, but video games and across the board is trying to push against, right? And 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 some are even trying to shift. So there's a game called um, out there, a tabletop role-playing game out there called um, Steal Away Jordan, and um, it is a game where uh, the author, uh, she's a uh, p- pretty cool people. She's a uh, uh, she's a black author, um, and she wrote this game specifically to f- Frame and um create a role-playing game um where you play um a slave in the american south and she did it to give the concept of slaves to give them agency right to show that even Mm. though these people were enslaved even though they were uh owned and they had that they were still human beings that they still had a certain level of agency that they still lived their lives and that they uh They created music and art and did all of these other things despite their horrific condition, right? Because all too often um, we try and view – in our entertainment, we try and view uh, people of color – Uh, All marginalized groups through their trauma and through their pain. Right. And that's all we see of them. Right. And so she created this uh, role playing game uh, as kind of an educational experience. Right. And, And so we're starting to see that sort of thing happening. Um, in these, in these spaces as well, where, uh, games are being used for, um, educational purposes, uh, for people, uh, for instances like that, uh, for people, uh, with, uh, various types of neurodivergence and all of these other things, um, these games are starting to be used as tools, um, to help guide people, um, that there are different ways of doing things that there are different ways of telling stories and that it all doesn't have to be focused on what we've had for so long um and thankfully that uh trend is is continuing within this year we're going to see um a a number of more games that are going to come from a very diverse crop uh, of authors and there are already plenty out there um from very diverse crops of of things that are changing kind of um the landscape and i hope that keeps on and continues.
0: So that's, 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 I mean, that's good news. That's good news that, that, because here's the thing, the, the, this is no longer, I, I mean, you said at the beginning of the episode that this was kind of niche, but I don't think it's as niche anymore as it was. I mean, I no. you know my, my kids play these games and, I, I I mean I I definitely see it's it's much more popular now. It's 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 not made fun of as much in pop culture, like references and things along. I remember just yeah, watching PMP yeah. last night; they had a skit on one. But like like it's definitely one of those things. But here's here's I guess where I want to go with this. Even bigger, um, obviously, we have to talk about this. Our video games. It is the number one form of entertainment, at, 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 I think, in the world now. I think at this point, like like yeah. gaming, gaming produces more dollars and cents than film and music and all those other things combined at this point right yeah so what kind of i i mean it feels like we're going back in the conversation so i don't necessarily want to go backwards in the conversation but um are we seeing the same kind of trajectory from game from tabletop games to video games moving forward as well as now this more um recent i guess striving to change that or flip that narrative a little bit? Have we mm-hmm. seen that kind of model? Because here's the thing. I remember way back when I w- was a kid, which was a really long time ago, one of the first video games I ever played was literally Dungeons and Dragons. It was on some four bit yeah. or two bit. Yeah. It certainly wasn't even eight bit, I didn't think, but some sort of console, maybe, I think it, w- it was an and television or something. Intellivision, probably, yeah. Is that yeah. what it was? Anyway, yeah. yeah, and the first game I ever played was, was, was Dungeons and Dragons. It was literally Dungeons yeah. and Dragons. I'm not a, a 90s parent sitting here saying, Saying that video games make people violent or something along those lines. But I do think they, they are a representation, just like we talked about, of storytelling and hero crafting yeah. and things along those lines. I do yeah. think there is a reflexive relationship there. Are we seeing the same thing? Did we see the same thing in early gaming? And are we seeing the pushback now or resistance or agency?
1: Yeah. So I will say uh, 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 before I address that, that, that it's important to note here that a lot of video gaming today uh, huge segments legend of zelda world of warcraft they all owe they're their in that existence. genre which is why they owe their, yeah they owe their existence to Dungeons and dragons to role, tabletop role playing games right yeah. computer role playing games all flow from tabletop role playing games right Um, and they're a huge part of the, of the, of the gaming segment, right? These wildly popular titles that are out there, but I will say that the MMORPG, MMORPG. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And so yes and no is my answer. So, so we certainly see, um, just like we see in other parts of entertainment, um, throughout the history of role-playing games of course the very early role-playing games you go back to um, in television right And some of these very early characters the, the the very early characters were these little dots and pixels and you could, really couldn't tell right um, who they what they were or any kind of like gender or, or anything like that in the very early games gradually that started to change a little bit but overwhelmingly once again white men dominate. Um, um the genre right Th- throughout role playing games as the heroes right these are the heroes throughout so many of our of of our video games um we are starting to see some change um in in gaming where uh yes we are starting to see a wider range of characters from marginalized groups across the board um over the last uh several years um and being moved out of being kind of the sidekick characters to being central characters um in these games and stuff like that and then of course in um in a lot of these games so in a lot of the mmorpgs in a lot of the um uh role-playing games uh you are allowed to choose what your hero looks like right but you will find, I think, that if you go into these games um, uh, that exist where you are able to choose that, you're overwhelmingly going to find uh, characters who are not people of color. Um, overwhelmingly, you are going to find, I think, also that there are uh, a lot of games that um, present uh, very few options for you to choose um, people of color and then of course the other paradigm uh, along gender is is that uh, we, we end up with a problem that was a problem that exists in tabletop role-playing games early on and throughout its history if you look at the art uh, and, and and in games we have the problem of the chain bikini right um, if you have two characters of the exact same class and one is female and one is male uh, with few exceptions the female uh, character is going to be glad clad in this form fitting, very skimpy armor. And the male character is going to be in this very kind of bulky kind of armor, right? We want to accentuate the, 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 body of the female, right. And, and, and give her either the chainmail bikini or as close as the chainmail bikini as we can come. And, and the male character is going to have full armor. Right. Um, and so we see, uh, um, these problems, and the, and the gaming industry has a notorious problem, um, and so there's a there's a there's a, a double issue here in the gaming industry. We have kind of the 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 um, the entertainment industry, which has notorious problems, right, with both representation of women and people of color, but then we also have the tech industry, which also has the same problem, and video games are a marrying of these two, right. Um, And so there are uh, uh, still a lot, a lot of problematic issues in games, even as we're beginning to see uh, some, some representation start to increase. um, There's just uh, that. And then of course there is this very, again, just like all of these others, this very vocal group of people who want to, to feel that their ability to be uh, the dominant, force in charge of these things is being taken from them right uh it's slipping away from them right and 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 i think more so with tabletop role-playing games and video games it's even more internalized again because there's that interactive part so when like nick talked about earlier that people are internalizing these things i think they internalize them even more with these games because they're interactive um, even more so than reading a book or watching a movie. So they really feel like a part of their identity is because they're playing these characters, right? They're internalizing these characters who are going out and being the standard white male hero and doing the things that that hero does and conforming to these kind of Eurocentric and Orientalist norms and stuff like that. Um, they, I think they feel that more keenly with these characters because of the interactive. Uh, um uh, aspect of both tabletop and video games.
0: Yeah. And you had me thinking on the fly, reflecting back on what Nick was saying on an earlier point regarding like sexual predation and things along those lines, this fetishization, this almost fantasy, like this is a way for, but now I'm thinking back to the countless, like, I mean, it's, it's world famous at this point. Everyone knows you jump into, um, an Xbox live lo- lobby and call of duty. You're going to hear every type of racial slur over and over and over again. And it's almost right. a knee jerk reaction for these individuals when they're upset or demeaning somebody to use racial slurs specifically. Um, not, not, they're intentionally choosing those words or maybe unintentionally or whatever that might be part of like that, that fantasy as well. Like this ability to quote unquote anonymously be able to be this person online, um, where they could never get away with this walking through the grocery store or right. the mall or whatever. So yeah, I mean, that it,
1: anonymity is key and, and, yeah. the sho- and, and, and they love the shock value of it. Right. That's, that's a huge part of what they're doing. The shock value of just right. blurting out, uh, 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 um, these racial slurs, right. Part, part of this is, is, is that, um, uh, and that's one of the, I think the key differences between, um, at least the tabletop space and the video game space one of the key differences is is that the tabletop space or or the or i should say the the video game space comes with a certain level of anonymity and because of the nature of tabletop role-playing games that's a lot uh a lot less likely with tabletop role-playing games because you're directly interacting um, with people even if you're doing it as has become even more popular in the um um in the COVID world, even if you're doing it through some sort of video Discord chat or, yeah, or, or something like that, um, um, th- there's a uh, less chance of, 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 a level of anonymity. That being said, there are some who just absolutely refuse to give it up. We had a, uh, there was a big blow up in the, um, in the space uh, just this last year. Um, so TSR was the company that created Dungeons and Dragons, Gary Gygax uh, was one of the founders of Dungeons and Dragons. Um, he has some children, uh, and, and, and one of his children in particular, uh, uh, became involved with kind of a new iteration of TSR, uh, to try and revive like the glory days of TSR to harken back. Um, and he's been associated uh, to one degree or another with some other people who are trying to bring back some of the older titles that that TSR um, uh, um, wrote, one of those being Star Frontiers. Um, and they they a, a leak came out. They were going to put together kind of a crowdfunding campaign to bring out a new version of, of Star Frontiers, and a leak came out. Of some of the the material that was going to be in this book, and absolutely horrific, um, trying to conform to these scientific um, styles that they put in here, uh, they're going back to using terms like negroid and mongoloid. Um, they're 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 uh, um, s- establishing these ideas that. Um, those who are of uh, kind of Nordic extraction have better um, statistics, strength, intelligence, those sort of things than those who come from these other strains of humanity and and, and just some horrific, awful stuff. Um, and so there are those people who are still out there who are still trying to cling to um, these just again outdated ideas because again um those are the worlds they want to play in those are the worlds they were going to see and this is a place where they can have that world where white people are still in charge and where uh everybody else has to bow to them and they can do as they please within the context of these games like I said, thankfully, there are plenty out there who are challenging those ideas and, and trying to upset those apple carts and, and write a more diverse um, and, and, um, and representative uh, form of, of game and types of game that are pushing back against that. But I think these uh, individuals in all of these types of entertainment are um, they're kind of the ones that we're having to push back against because they just they don't want to give it up.
0: Last question, uh, at least for me, Nick might have one, but last question for me. So obviously recent events of the last, let's say decade here, specific now will be specific to the U.S. We were pretty specific to it already, but maybe just Western culture in general, but specific to the U.S. You've seen obviously a rise in, let me just be blunt, white, male, straight, cis nationalism, like evangelical nationalism as a reaction to... Um, politically or socially, or even in pop culture, as a reaction to them, feel like they're losing something. So now they're just being more upfront about their blatant racist or elitist or whatever, like the way they think about the world. Have we seen that same reaction in the gaming world in this case? Have we seen these? I don't know. Now I sound like Dave Chappelle. The whites. Have we seen the whites <laughs> this way? Um, the way I yes. perceive them react, like okay, like you're not taking this from us, and we're going to be now even more more overt in our wildly historically inaccurate, unethical, just problematic way of thinking. Have we seen that?
1: So yes, we <laughs> have brought up some games
0: that are being made by by people or women of color. Um, is there is there blowback now from?
1: Absolutely. So uh, last year uh, also. Uh, a Kickstarter campaign was put up for a game called Into the Motherlands. Into the Motherlands is written by a diverse team of authors. It was kind of conceived by B. Dave Walters, who is one of the big uh, uh, um, African American creators in in the in the space. Um, and he writes this is kind of a science fiction reimagining. Um, he he goes back to uh, you mentioned before Mansa Musa. He goes yeah. back to this concept that the the kingdom that Mansa Musa was part of Mali at one point sent out uh there's a tale that they sent out a fleet of ships into the atlantic um in the direction of the new world but that fleet just disappeared mm. um that uh in, in this kind of reimagining that fleet encounters some kind of a weird storm that transports them to another world and um they kind of reestablish a new uh, society uh in um in um kind of based on african themes and african norms but of course now that they're in this new world they don't have to deal with the coming of europeans they don't have to deal with the slave trade and all of these other things so they end up building this kind of uh sci-fi uh world that kind of develops this Afrocentric thing and 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 there's pushback right there's there's pushback um so you have a group of individuals um in the world who are uh, what's going on right now is what's called the OSR movement or the old school Renaissance who are pushing for going back to the early days of uh, Dungeons and Dragons, the way it was before, right? Absolutely. Right. (laughs) And so um, now, now there are some people among that who are, they're perfectly fine. They just want to go back because some of the earlier versions of D and D had a uh, uh, kind of a different rule set and they kind of want to go back to that rule set, but they're not necessarily about like the, the, um, the more, horri- but there are those who also want to go back to that, um, that time frame when they could rape and pillage and burn and freely do whatever within these games and do all these other things. So you have pushback there and you have pushback from those who again are, are screaming about, accurate historical accuracy as they envision it um and all of these other things and about why do we need these changes these games were fine as they were no they're not racist and no they're not eurocentric and no they're not this and no they're not that right the same kind of pushback we see um, across the gamut who uh those who are just kind of um, denying or not seeing what's going on who want things to either remain as they are or go back to the way they were. Right. Make 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 America great again, as as um, if you will, Uh, which which I I, I will point out in a in in an odd connection. If you haven't read anyone here has not read Octavia Butler's Earthseed books, great sci fi books uh, written in the 1990s, where she uh, uh, imagines a, a a very white christian nationalist president in the early 21st century who runs under the campaign slogan make america great again very f- interesting read uh, in, uh, uh if you remember what's been going on in the last few years but yeah there there definitely is that pushback from those who again they think they're losing something they feel like and and you know they're they're they their dominance is slipping right um and they want to uh re-envision and, and 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 to some extent like i said these games allow them to do that these games allow them to crawl back into a world where they can be in control and they can set the pace and the tone and the placement and the hierarchies and all of those sorts of things
2: Do you have anything nick no i think i'm good it's all fascinating stuff i think that we could probably talk about this and video gaming and etc the three of us for hours uh, and we, we easily could Maybe we'll continue to do so in uh, future episodes, for sure, because me and Jared are, we talk about gaming all the time, and in fact, we did an episode on Daisy and stuff like that. but uh, yeah, yeah, I just want to say thank you to Stefan for joining us again, and thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. If you like this episode and you're interested in supporting us on Patreon, you can do so at revolutionandideology.com. Uh, sorry, patreon.com/revolution and Ideology. I am Nick.
0: I'm Jared. Thank you.
2: Later.